Good morning. Well, last time we saw Jesus feed the 5,000, John revealed the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and we saw that 5,000 were just the men, and so the miracle is probably more like a feeding of a 10,000 or 15,000 or 20,000 when you add the ladies and the children. That was the miracle that we saw of Jesus last time. Today we will see John reveal another miracle. This miracle, like all the others, shows that Jesus has complete authority over the laws of physics. It shows that Jesus has complete authority of this realm. You see, what a miracle is, is it is the suspension of the laws of nature. It is something that is done in defiance of the laws of nature. It is something that is beyond the laws of nature, which is what Jesus does. You know, sometimes when a baby's born, we say, that's a miracle. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful, it's spectacular, it's amazing, but technically it's not a miracle. Human birth is not a miracle because that's what happens in the normal course of nature. A miracle is something that happens outside and beyond the normal course of nature. And what we're going to see today, the miracle is Jesus walk on water. As impressive as that miracle is, it's actually just one of five miracles that are associated with the events on the Sea of Galilee this morning. John 6 gives us two of the five miracles, and Matthew 14 and Mark 6 give us the other three. Luke is the only gospel writer that doesn't record these events on the Sea of Galilee that we'll see this morning. But before we get to that miracle... John first talks about the people's refusal to accept Jesus as their true Messiah King. And so we need to spend some time on this first before we get to the miracle itself. Let's start with verse 14 by way of context. Our our passage today is beginning in verse 15, but let's just, so we kind of get the picture, let's start in verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw, this is John 6 chapter 14 therefore when the people saw the sign which he had performed they said this is truly the prophet which has come into the world Jesus had supernaturally fed these tens of thousands of people and so when the people saw the miracle when the crowds saw the miracle what came to mind was their memory of Moses Jesus fit the pattern of Moses because Jesus supernaturally provided food to the multitudes, food from heaven, because Jesus is from heaven. Moses provided manna from heaven. And so the people automatically think of Moses. The people correctly conclude that Jesus is the prophet that Moses had prophesied about that would come to Israel. It was prophesied back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Keep reading verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus provided them food, provided food for the nation. Moses provided, supernaturally, food for the nation. But Moses also provided freedom for the nation. Actually, God did it through Moses, but the people think of Moses. When they think 
of Moses, they think of the one who provided them for them in the wilderness, God through Moses, and they think of the one who provided them freedom from Pharaoh, God through Moses, provided both of those things. And so the people in their excitement about Jesus, this great miracle that he's done, this is the peak of Jesus' popularity here in John chapter 6, at least this part of John chapter 6. I mean, there's just a frenzy about Jesus. Herod Antipas, who had executed John the Baptist not that long before this, Herod Antipas has heard about Jesus, and so Herod Antipas thinks, well, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead because Jesus has the same kind of level of buzz, his popularity like John the Baptist does, but of course Jesus' popularity is much more than John the Baptist. So Jesus is popular, Jesus is exciting, and the people in their excitement say, this man who provided us food supernaturally, he's got supernatural signs. He's got supernatural powers. This is going to be great. Let's make him king. We just saw him give us supernatural food. Let's make him king, and then he can use those supernatural powers. We don't know what all they are, but whatever they are, he can use them to get rid of Rome because we don't like being under the boot of the Romans the sandal of the Romans the foot of the Romans I mean the people are under a pagan nation in the Roman Empire They're, the Roman Empire oppresses Israel just like it oppresses all the other people in the empire and so the people think Jesus has these supernatural powers let's make him king and then he can use those supernatural powers to free us give us political freedom just like Moses gave us political freedom from Pharaoh, Jesus will give us political free freedom, but this time from the Romans. And what really juices up this whole deal, what juices up the crowd, is that it's Passover. We saw from verse 4 in chapter 6. It's near the Passover. And remember, the Passover is the most important of all the festivals. It's all, the most important of all the, the Jewish feasts. It's a very patriotic event because Passover recalls to mind Moses when the Lord passed over the house that had the, the remember Moses told the Lord told Moses to tell the people when they're still slaves in Egypt it's the last of the plagues to slaughter the lamb and to put its blood over the doorpost and then the Lord passed by that house he passed over that house but the houses that didn't have the blood of the door, door, doorpost he took the firstborn whether they were Egyptian or Israelite. He took the firstborn. That was the tenth of the plagues. And so Passover has this image in the people's minds, in Israel's mind. This is the, this is the time to remember. It's almost like, like a, it's a day of independence. It's Independence Day. And so there's this kind of patriotic fervor that is in the crowd already. They see Jesus, they think of Moses, and they think, look, let's make him king. By hook or by crook, let's make him king. That's why it says by force. Let's make him king. And if we can make him king, then we're happy to take up arms against Rome because we'll have this great leader who will free us from Rome. Jesus knew what they were planning, and so he left the area. In verse 15, he withdrew to a mountain, which is to say he rejected their offer to make him king. Let me say that again. Jesus rejected this people's offer to make him king. 
Isn't that odd that the king of kings would not want to be king? Isn't that odd that the king of Israel would reject the offer of at least this part of Israel to make him king? I mean, two years earlier, Jesus had done something very similar. Two years before this, Jesus had rejected another offer to make him king, but that offer was actually much more impressive than this offer. In Matthew 4, remember the temptation from the devil. And the devil took him, took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is citing Deuteronomy 6 there. That's not just an offer to be king of one nation like the crowd was offering Jesus. This is to be offer. This is an offer to be king of all the nations, of all the kingdoms. That's the offer from the devil. And of course, Jesus rejects it because it would be a sin. It's a violation of Scripture. Because Deuteronomy says that you will worship God alone because God alone is worthy of worship. But what if the devil hadn't attached the condition? What if the devil had simply said, I offer you all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. To be king of the kings. I know that's not what the devil did. Right? He had the condition of fall down and worship me. But what if the devil hadn't conditioned it at all and just said, will you accept to be king of all the kingdoms? Would that have been wrong for Jesus to, accepted that, to have accepted that? Yes, of course. But why? Why would that have been wrong? Jesus was the true Messiah. He was the true Messiah King whose kingdom is of a different realm. Jesus' kingdom is not of this realm. It is of a different dimension altogether. That's why it would have been wrong for Jesus to, act, to accept the devil's offer to be king of all the kingdoms. That's one of the reasons. There are a number of reasons that we're going to see. Let's talk about the first one. Jesus' kingdom is from a different realm. Remember when Jesus is talking to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Messiah's kingdom transcends the earth. Messiah's kingdom is from above. That's why Messiah in John chapter 3 says to Nicodemus, you must be born anothen in order to see the kingdom of God. You must be born from above. John 3, 3, Jesus says, truly, truly, you, he's speaking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, you must be born from above to see the kingdom of God. And we saw that Greek word anothen, it can mean again or it can mean from above, which is to say you must be born again, which is being born from above to see the kingdom of God, because Jesus' kingdom is from above. Jesus rejected the offer to be king of one kingdom, singular, that was given to him in John 6, and Jesus rejected the offer to be the king of the kingdoms, plural, 
that was offered to him in Matthew 4 by the devil, by the head of the fallen angels. The reason he rejected those offers, both of them, is because they were offers of counterfeit kingdoms. Counterfeit kingdoms because he is king of the Father's kingdom. That's what Jesus calls it. In Matthew 26, 29, the kingdom that he will receive and accept and reign over is the Father's kingdom. It is a heavenly kingdom. It is not an earthly kingdom. Now, to be sure, he will bring the Father's kingdom from heaven to the earth for a thousand years. Revelation 20. And then he'll destroy the earth and he'll make a new earth. I suspect he'll just speak it into existence like he did the first one. And then he'll continue the Father's kingdom in the new earth and the new heavens. The point is that Jesus' kingdom is not of this dimension. It's not of this realm. And so the people were offering him, and the devil was offering him counterfeit kingdoms, at least with respect to the Messiah, because Messiah's kingdom is the Father's kingdom that is brought from heaven with its peace and its righteousness and its justice and its love to this planet that transforms the planet. It has a physical dimension to it, the Father's kingdom, but it is sourced, it is originated in the Father and in heaven. So reason number one that Jesus rejected the offer is because it was an offer of a kingdom that was not the kingdom prophesied for Messiah. Reason number two that Jesus rejected the crowd's offer, and for that matter, the devil's offer, is that it would have violated the Father's plan for Jesus. Since eternity passed, since before the foundation of the universe, before the foundation of the planet, the Father has always had the plan for Messiah, that Messiah was, would first carry his cross before he would have the throne, have the throne and, and have the crown on his head. He would first bear the cross before wearing the crown. This is why Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, for example, describes the Father as exalting Messiah only after Messiah has borne the sins of many, to use the prophet's words. The Father exalts Messiah in, in Isaiah chapter 53 only after Messiah has interceded for the transgressors and has poured out himself to death to use Isaiah's words. It was always the plan for Messiah to first bear the cross before he would wear the crown. And so Jesus rejected the crowd's offer in John chapter 6 because it was not the Father's will. The third reason that Jesus rejected the offer to make him king is because they did not want the true Messiah king. They did not accept Jesus as the true Messiah king. They wanted a political Messiah, not the prophesied Messiah who they would have to submit to. They wanted, just like us, an omnipotent Messiah. They were okay with a powerful Messiah who would do stuff for them. They were okay with a powerful Messiah, an omnipotent Messiah, but they were not okay with a sovereign Messiah that required their submission. 
You see, sovereignty is a sophisticated theological word for, that simply means he's the boss. That he is the absolute authority. Our problem is not that different from the crowd's problem. Because we want a Jesus who will give us stuff. And then when we got our stuff, I'll tell you what, Jesus, I'll call you, you don't call me. And then when we're in a pickle again, hey, Jesus, where are you? Because we want a Jesus who is omnipotent, but not a Jesus who is sovereign. They wanted not the true Messiah King. They wanted a Messiah who would give them free food and free stuff and political freedom, but not a king that they would have to submit to by faith. And of course, always, 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 from the very beginning, Jesus had wanted them to accept him as the true Messiah King. You remember in Matthew 23, verse 37, where he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I, how often I long to gather you as, as my children, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. He always wanted Jerusalem to, to accept him as the true Messiah King. In fact, he wept. He cried at the idea that Jerusalem, that Israel would reject him as the king, not because it hurt his feelings, not because he, he had his pride hurt. No kind of blasphemy like that. He wept because he knew the judgment that would come upon Israel. You can read about that in Luke 19. It's important to understand that Jesus always wanted Israel to accept him as the true Messiah King because he made a legitimate offer. He made the offer to Israel. It was a legitimate offer of the Messianic kingdom. What was the message of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry? Same message as John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, change your mind about the king. I'm the king. Change your mind. And that that was a message that was unique to Israel because the king was there. So he offered a legitimate offer to Israel for the messianic kingdom. It's important to understand that, but they rejected it because they wanted a Messiah of their own terms, not the Messiah who was prophesied. How would history have unfolded if they had accepted Jesus' offer? of the messianic kingdom Jesus is offered to be the king of Israel how would history have unfolded we don't know those are not the facts so it's not worth a whole bunch of brain damage to try and speculate how that would have happened the facts are Israel rejected her messiah which God always knew would happen which was weaved into God's plan since before the foundation of the earth did he cause it no but he knew that it would happen and it was part of his plan the point of john 6 15 is that jesus did not does not let them make him king because they wanted to make him king for all the wrong reasons it would have violated the father's will and it was not the father's kingdom that they were offering now comes the miracle look at verse 16 of chapter 6 Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the Sea of Capernaum. 
the seed to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. We know from Mark's account that Jesus makes the disciples get into the boat. Mark uses the word anagkatso, meaning compel. Jesus compelled the disciples to get into the boat while he went off to pray at a mountain. I'm sure they didn't want to leave Jesus. I mean, they've just seen this incredible miracle where he has supernaturally fed thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. I'm sure they want to spend time with Jesus, but Jesus says, get in the boat. He's going to send them off into adversity. He's going to send them off onto the Sea of Galilee. Galilee. They start rowing to Capernaum. They start out close to Bethsaida on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And they're leaving that area to head by boat to Capernaum, which is on the other side of the lake. It's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was Jesus's base of operations, you might say. Here's a, a, a photo not taken by John, of course, <laughs> but a, a photo of the Sea of Galilee at dusk, and these events are going to happen in the evening, the events of John chapter 6, and this is looking west. At, the, at its widest spot, the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles wide, and at its longest spot, it's about 13 miles long. Just keep this picture in mind as we go through these events. Keep reading in verse 18. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. There's some geography about the Sea of Galilee that, that is important here. So with the Sea of Galilee, you've got the, the Mediterranean Sea here, and the winds come from the Mediterranean Sea this way. They come east. Well, this land here is kind of hilly. And so there's, you know, the hills are, are maybe 1,500 feet in elevation. The Sea of Galilee, which is essentially a freshwater lake, it's fed by the Jordan River up here, is below sea level, significantly below sea, sea level. It's about 700 feet below sea level. And so th th that's why we see in this language here in verse 16 that the disciples went down that didn't mean they didn't, went down into the earth. It just means they were, they were up in the, kind of in the hills, and they went down to the sea because it's 700 feet lower than sea level. When the winds come from the Mediterranean and they go over the, the, the hill country here, they drop considerably, and when they drop kind of over the ridge and they hit the water, you've get, you, you get this kind of climate result of storms and squalls that are very dangerous in the Sea of Galilee. You can have gale force winds and violent waves. And so Matthew describes this same scene, and he says that the disciples, that they rode for a while, and they end up far from land when the winds hit. The waves, Matthew describes, start battering the boat, and the disciples struggle because they're rowing west they're rowing into the winds. Mark tells us that during all this, Jesus is up on the mountain praying by himself. He's praying alone. And he sees, Mark says, he sees the disciples 
struggling on the sea. This is miracle number one. How does a man see three to four miles away in the dark, in a storm? How does that work? This is way before night vision binoculars. How does that work? This is miracle number one. Verse 19. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. I'm sure they were. This is miracle number two. In the midst of the storm, while the wind and the waves are striking the boat and the disciples are rowing as best they can, they look over and they see a man walking on the waves. I don't know if he was walking from wave to wave or if he was treating the waves as like steps and he'd walk up the wave and then walk down and then walk back up the wave. Whatever it was, these men in the boat are freaked out because they're seeing something that utterly defies the laws of nature, the laws of physics. Mark tells us that the disciples thought that they saw a ghost. And Mark uses the words that they were terrified and they cried out. Mark also tells us that this is on the fourth watch of the night. The Romans divided the night into four watches. From 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. is watch number one. From 9 p.m. to midnight, watch number two. Midnight to 3 a.m., watch number three. And then 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. is watch number four. So it is early, early, early in the morning. It's from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's dark when they see this water walker next to their boat. They were in the middle of the sea, Mark says. So when you hear the skeptic, Right? When, you, when you go to school and your professor says, don't you understand, this is fairy tale stuff. This is fiction stuff. Here's what happened. There was a sandbar that Jesus was walking on or there was a log that he was standing on. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and it is a deep sea, well over 100 feet deep. This is a deep sea and they're in the in the, they're not on the shoreline. They're in the middle of the sea, Mark says. Keep reading in verse 20. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. As soon as Jesus steps into the boat, the boat is teleported from the middle of the sea to the shoreline. I mean, I know I'm using a sci-fi term to teleport, but I don't know what other term to use. It was supernaturally transported. I guess maybe that's a little more technical. Supernaturally transported from the middle of the sea to the shoreline. And if they're three to four miles, uh, if they've been rowing for three to four miles and the sea is roughly eight miles wide, that means it was teleported roughly three to four miles like that. This is miracle number three. Matthew gives us two more miracles associated with these events. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 14. 
Matthew 14, where we see the parallel passage from the Apostle Matthew. Matthew 14, 25 reads like this. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. You've got to love Peter. Now the Lord just lets it go. Well, of course it's me. I just told you it was me. He didn't say that. He lets it go. Verse 29. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? This is miracle number four. Jesus causing Peter to walk on water. Keep reading, verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Miracle number five. Causing the wind to immediately end. Verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Jesus has given a display of five miracles associated with these events on the Sea of Galilee. Number one, he supernaturally saw their location from miles away in the dark, in a storm. Number two, he walked on water. Number three, he made Peter walk on water. Number four, he stopped the winds. And number five, he teleported a vessel full of passengers three and a half miles from one spot of the lake to another spot. Jesus sent his disciples into the storm. I don't want you to miss that. He sent the ones that he loved into adversity, into difficulty. Did he know the storm was coming? Of course. He made the planet. He sent them into the adversity so that they would see his mastery over this realm, so that they would understand that the laws of physics are subject to him, that he controls the laws of nature, the laws of this realm, so that they would understand that He is the Son of God. And Son of God, as we have studied before, does not mean that He is the offspring of God. It means that He is of the same order, of the same nature, of the same essence as God. He wanted them to understand that He is their provider in all respects, not just food supernaturally feeding the 5,000, but also to provide for them in the midst of danger in the midst of adversity we live in a fallen broken world that is full of adversity full of difficulties full of challenges those things will be gone when we get to heaven but this side of heaven we lived in a in a messed up world and jesus wants you to know just like he wanted the disciples to know i'm in charge trust me I am ready, willing, and able to do that which 
defies the world, that which defies the laws of the nature of the world, that which defies the laws of physics. It's a great lesson for us. Sometimes Jesus puts us in a tough spot so that we will come to trust him as the one and only provider. These miracles evidence that Jesus does what only God can do. He controls nature. You remember the miracle, very similar to this, on the Sea of Galilee, before this event on the Sea of Galilee, right? In Mark, where the disciples are on the boat with Jesus, and Jesus is sleeping, and the storm comes in, and the storm is beating the boat, and they're concerned the boat is going to break up, and water's getting in the boat, and so they go to Jesus and wake up. Don't you understand that we're going to die? And Jesus stands up, and he looks at the wind, and he says, shh. He says, hush. It disappears, and the lake becomes perfectly calm. And the disciples rightfully turn and say, Who is this who even the winds and the waves obey? This hap- that happened earlier in the ministry of Jesus. One event on the Sea of Galilee. Now we have a second event on the Sea of Galilee here in John chapter 6. Because Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. Jesus doesn't come in and do miracles willy-nilly. Jesus comes in and does miracles with extreme precision so that it will be undeniable that He is God in the flesh, that He is Messiah, who was always prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures to be fully God, fully man. He's doing what the Hebrew Scriptures said God does. Please turn in your Bibles to one final passage, Psalm 107. Psalm 107. What Jesus is doing is he is evidencing his equality with God. Remember, he he claimed in John chapter 5, just the prior chapter, to be equal with God, and so the Pharisees want to kill him immediately. The religious leaders want to kill him immediately. And so what he responds is he says over and over and over in John chapter 5, oh, you didn't understand. I said I was God. I said I'm equal with God. Let me explain another way that I'm equal with God, and another way, and another way, and another way. Multiple times. He explains his equality with God in John chapter 5. Here in John chapter 6, he is displaying that he does what is only what God does. That he does what is the exclusive province of God. Look at Psalm chapter 107, verse 23. There we read, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters like fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They have seen the works of Yahweh and His wonders in the deep. 
For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waters of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wits' end. They, then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still. There it is. So that the waves of the sea were hushed. There it is. Verse 30, then they were glad because they were quiet. So he girded them to their desired haven. He guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to Yahweh for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. What we're seeing here is Yahweh doing what Jesus did and Jesus doing what Yahweh did. Because Jesus comes in and fulfills the Hebrew Scriptures. He doesn't obliterate them. The, the Old Testament is in your Bible for a reason. It's the Word of God. Now, it's true. The, we have the New Testament now, and Jesus has come, and there's a lot more revelation, but the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, are still the Word of God. And what's so important when it comes to the earthly ministry of Jesus is that He fulfilled the Scriptures. And so when he claims to be Yahweh, he evidences it. And he proves that he does what the Hebrew Scriptures themselves prophesied about. He is the one who has mastery over this realm. He is the true Messiah King, the only one who is entitled to glory and praise and worship and honor. He is the provider. Now, if there is anyone here today without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, we want you to know that God loves you. That God came in the flesh, the one who has mastery over this universe, the one who defies the laws of physics, the one who performs miracles with great ease, the one who is the provider. He loves you though you are his enemy. You are the enemy of God if you have not accepted Christ, subject to his fierce wrath, enslaved in the slave market of sin. And yet, he loves you. And so in his great mercy and his great grace and his great compassion, he gives you a way out. And the way out is by faith alone in Christ alone. There's no other access to God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way to God. It's not Muhammad. It's not Buddha. It's not atheism, which make no mistake, that is a religion. None of the other religions provide access to the Father. Only Jesus. This is what he is displaying in John chapter 6. Buddha never claimed to have power over the laws of physics. Muhammad never claimed to have power over the winds. When the disciples say, who is this that even the winds obey him? The answer is the Son of God. Remember, John writes the book for this purpose. John chapter 20, verse 30, these things are written that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. There are more miracles that Jesus did than are recorded in the book of John, for that matter, in any of the Gospels. But John says, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so what's happening is these events, especially in John chapter 6, are working towards a climax. They're working towards a culmination, and that's why at the end of the chapter, of chapter 6, Peter makes this great confession of faith. The great confession of faith at the end of chapter 6, in chapter 6, verse 53, where Jesus said to them, truly, truly, excuse me, at the end of chapter 6, I'm, I'm a little early there, where Peter said to them, to, to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God that's what the chapter is marching towards, the confession of faith that Peter says. The reason Peter says it is because he just saw Jesus do all these miracles, feeding 5,000, miracles showing his power over the natural realm. And he gets it. The question for us is, do we find these miracles boring? The reason Jesus evidences miracles and, and, and does miracles was so that we would believe because those miracles display who He is. And so if you haven't trusted Christ, trust His miracles. You didn't see the miracle. We weren't there. But we believe those who have recorded it for us. Remember the disciples were a bunch of cowards. They were. Right? Everyone scatters. When they come to arrest Jesus, they're all gone. And they go to Peter, the great Peter. I'm never going to betray you, Jesus. And, and, they, and they say to Peter, I don't know him. Three times, he says, before the crow sounds. I don't, I don't even know. And then the, fat, the last one is, I called down a curse. I don't know him. They're all cowards. And something happened that transformed every one of them to men of courage. Because every one of them was martyred, according to church tradition, except for one, John, who gets banished on the island of Patmos by the emperor. The signs of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. Now, the resurrection, we'll see at the end of the book, uh, is, 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 the, is the most impressive of all the miracles. But it's the miracles of Jesus. That's what teaches the disciples who Jesus is. That's why they're important to us. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, today's the day. Don't wait. Don't wait. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you that you recorded it for us. We ask that you open our eyes, give us eyes to see the things not seen. Give us courage to speak your truth, not other people's truths, which is no truth at all, but your absolute divine truth, to speak it in love and to be a light in a dark, dying world.
We pray these things in Jesus' name.